Who but a witch would not give up her virtue to a man who brought her a luncheon of salt pork and boiled sweets? But, Your Honor, I tried to give up my virtue. I begged him to take me then and there. Yeah, okay, okay. No, no, nobody believes that tall tale. And he would have none of it. I offered him posterior intimacy. Okay, let's just... Everyone calm down. The court reporter will still his quill. On hands and knees, I begged him. He said he had an early appointment. Witch! Witch! Press her between stones! What up, witches? Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of Nick's Nonfiction. I'm your host, comic Nick Muniz. Today on the show, we've got a treat. We are keeping in the theme of the English Enlightenment. We are going towards Nathaniel Hawthorne's classic, The Scarlet Letter. I hear you out there already. It's not nonfiction. Black Lives Matter. I know, I know. We've done a few fiction books on the show before, and they have done fairly well we've had a uh, dostoevsky underground man albert camus the stranger ken grimwood replay and where can you go wrong with standing up for hester Prynne? i mean this girl she is one of the og feminists she lived the motto girls for girls not just when her girls needed a sheep shear for their monthly red plague down under <laughs> hester she taught young girls about their sexuality back in a time of puritanical rule Imagine that. This is the most banned book of all time for the religious context of the time. The church was able to silence the entire culture of female empowerment. Hester Prynne is one badass bitch. Nathaniel Nasty Nate Hawthorne, he is a feminist ally. That is right. This is a true revival. We need a 2020 Scarlet Letter. You remember that movie, Easy A? I just watched it in preparation, not because uh, Emma Stone's an absolute smoke show or anything like that, dressing as a slut in high school. I mean, that's just abominable. This movie is about the Scarlet Letter, and it talks all about, like, with the phones nowadays, the digital age of slut-shaming is upon us. And now I know in the, in, in the descriptions I'm saying... It's okay to be a slut right now, but not really like in the high school. Think about the guilt, the shame. We're talking about shame today, the shame of a high school girl losing their virginity. It is all these eyes for doing the human act of sex. We're really getting into the human condition today, original sin. Gotta thank Hester Prynne. She would have taught a better sex ed class than most of us received. I'm still waiting on a response from my ninth grade teacher. I asked him, if my girlfriend blows air in my butthole, are my balls going to inflate like a balloon? I'm terrified. We're scared to try it. <laughs> Let's get about the author, Nathaniel Hawthorne. He was born in 1804, right after the witch trials. You guys know the story. You've probably heard it on media recently. Those crazy mass hysterias that happened, just like 2020, back in history, there used to be ergot in the water. It happened in Rome countless times. People were tripping, and who feeds you? Your wife. You're going, what did you put in my food, bitch? You're a witch. And then you burn her at the stake. It was an easier time. In the 50s, you had to have a martini before you could lay a knuckle sandwich down on the missus. <laughs> Nate, he threw down six decades. He was alive till 1864. Born in Massachusetts, he lived out most of his life writing in New Hampshire, the OG Stephen King. If you look up his colonial-style house online, there's a picnic table outside just like the ones we use today. 
be pretty cool if he was writing some legendary sonnets on that thing. Must have some morphic resonance. You gain five writer points if you sit at it. Uh, his great-grandfather, John Hawthorne, he was one of the judges who oversaw the Salem witch trials. So great-great-grandfather. And he was the only judge that never repented for his actions. This kind of comes into the storyline. You'll hear of a minister that's like this. And when he dies, it symbolizes a new age of enlightenment, which those guys were probably pretty let down. The failed revolutions of the 1780s, you could look into. People were trying to keep it alive right now, 1804. Nate was coming up. Nathaniel, he went to Bowdoin College. He was a poor family his uncle had to chip him for him to go, and then he started working on the docks after. So that's when he started experiencing the ladies, and he was a fan of the uh, the floozies. He was a frequenter of the sex workers in town as a little sailor boy. Nathaniel, he has a famous quote. He wanted to be, you know, a big writer man, and he was ha- he had his $1,200 salary on the dock. It was a lot for the time, but he has the famous quote, Here, I'm trying to resume my pen. Whenever I sit alone or walk alone, I find myself dreaming about stories as of old. But these forenoons in the custom house undo all the forenoons and evenings that I have done. I should be happier if I could write. He was always a little bit of a wanderlust type of guy. So in 1848, after a few years at the dock, Mr. Hawthorne, he moves his family and his kids to Leno, Massachusetts, and two years later, he wrote his bestseller. In this meantime, though, he made friends with Ralph Waldo Emerson, you know, nature boy. He invited him into the entire inner circle, Herman Melville, the guy who wrote Moby Dick. Hawthorne, he popped off. His first piece was about a housewife drowning herself in a pond nearby that everybody knew of in Leno Mass, and they thought the pond was haunted. And Ralph Waldo Emerson was like, That's a legit story. Daps up Hawthorne's like, You're in the club now. Everyone's going to be scared of that pond forever. And in 1850, he drops the Scarlet Letter. Top 40 charts. We're still shoving it in our kids' faces. It's still relevant 200 years later. It sold 2,500 volumes in 10 days. That's like everybody who could read at the time. It's the first mass marketed book. What about the Bible? It's also notoriously the most pirated book, again, because the parish said it's banned literature. Hawthorne was known for his uh, romantic ideas, just like Emerson, except for Emerson could really talk about the beauty of the weeping willow tree being like a wise old man. And Hawthorne, he's writing spooky stories. He had to write about puritanical rule. And it's in his blood. He has a stubborn bloodline that one guy wouldn't give up on the witches when they all knew... Something was in the water for a little bit. <laughs> Nathaniel, he was able to take it dark and keep it there, and he's still keeping our attention. We have to do a little set and setting. It's a completely different time. Imagine being a chick at that time where adultery is the highest crime. Well, imagine being a gay man in like 18, no, this is 1600s, some of the first settlers. You take that to the grave. You have to live in the woods, as you'll see Hester does as well. Completely different time, whole long intro. It's basically as long as the book. Uh, just know the influence of religion is massive at the time. Everybody's wearing black and white, complete puritanical. You watch the old movie, not the Demi Moore one, where she's in the bath half the time. You watch the old, old Scarlet Letter, 
and it's black and white it's it should be portrayed like that i'm not going to be some picky old timer hollywood or hollywood's dead anyway so now you're getting the scarlet letter in a podcast the puritan elders at the time they saw earth as a passing by experience on the way an obstacle to heaven the stairway to heaven it's not even like something worth stopping and looking at <laughs> keep your head down keep praying that's the grand canyon though sir head down we're going up to mormon country that is uh what nathaniel hawthorne was trying to write against with his romantic point of view let's stop and smell the roses this takes place right outside of boston his big uh tackle of the intro also was the femininity paradox he was just getting straight up political in the intro to the book saying the traditional expectations of a woman to be docile and submissive is something we should have grown past by now. Like a girl could holster one of those little hooker muskets even they had that you put under your cleavage. That's true equality. Nathaniel Hawthorne was a second wave feminist boss bitch. He was up there with Betty Friedan saying, don't get married, you're taking a secondary spot in society. He's really taking some big-ass swings. So let's get into it, ladies and gentlemen. Twelve chapters, Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. Chapter one, crowd work. The first chapter, again, really setting the scene, not too much action. 1600s Boston, New England. It's a rainy, just like England, the old country, rainy day. Mud in the streets. If you've ever played, I'll have YouTube videos to set the scene. Assassin's Creed Three. This is the most immersive American Revolution experience you could ever have. You're an assassin killing redcoats. You walk around the city. There's It's videoing right now. I'll try to line up the sounds for when he stabs someone. <laughs> Drunk people in the streets. Sailing ships coming in. Ports everywhere. Gambling everywhere. There's a crowd starting to form outside of what looks like to be a prison and it looks like to be a violent prison by the sounds the cries for help and for god please stop the lashes coming from inside this somber looking place there's metal spikes on the door and right next to it is a rose and that rose is supposed to represent you know you get your last kiss of nature breath of fresh air before you go into the rigid cell structure of prison maybe that's a symbolism for society your english teacher will tell you that's supposed to symbolize hester prince vagina like in this first chapter even nathaniel is talking bigger concept he goes when the first settlers came to boston within 20 years the puritan elders had them build prisons <laughs> like we learned about last week in ancient Greece, they would just tell you to leave town if you're not welcome anymore. Puritans are like, we need to make examples out of people. We're putting them in cells. I went to, I'm a criminal justice major, went to state penitentiary, uh, Pennsylvania, one of the first prisons. You would lose your dome if you were in one of these little concrete cells. It was really self-adulation. Does that mean punishment? Back then. And so who emerges from the prison? None other than Hester Prynne holding little Pearl, her baby, in her arms. The mob is absolutely going nuts to see the harlotin herself in person. She's making her way over to a scaffolding where she's supposed to be publicly condemned. All of the women in the crowd are chirping at her loud with anger. Hester, you slut! My man thinks he could cheat around town now because of you. She has the giant A stamped on her shirt, embroidered. It stands for adulterer. It has a gold 
tint around the edges. You can't miss it. Everyone's wearing black and white. In the black and white movie, it's the only colored thing. Kind of like in Schindler's List, the red shoe. He took it from Scarlet Letter. And some of the girls in the crowd, the mob, are shouting out of jealous envy of Hester. Go get it, bitch. Hell yeah. Fuck your man. Get yours. (laughs) The Scarlet Letter, as you know, stands for adulterer. And she always holds the baby close to it. And as you see, Pearl grows up. She identifies with the letter. The MC. He's not doing a very well job. He was called the Beatle, B-E-A-D-L-E, the ringleader of the mob. He's letting them go free on Hester. Just like a beetle, a 1960s beetle, this guy was a lady killer. Literally, he kills women. He calls Hester to step forward onto the scaffolding. The children are doing execution nursery rhymes. Hester Prynne, you did it again. About to be hung for the balls on your chin. (laughs) They're rappers. This was the only entertainment even children have. They didn't have Pet Rescue at the time. There was no radio for adults, no Netflix. You wanted to see blood, and Hester has to pay. Her life is flashing before her eyes. She's getting closer to the stage. She's being squeezed so tight by the angry mob that her baby is crying, and she sang to herself her internal monologue. This is Puritan rule. This is all the rage. This is what we came to America for. It's hundred years in and this society has already fallen legit it's mob rule but does this draw any connections to 2020 and the cancel mob it's like once they put the letter on you you're canceled you can't be touched again by the blue check culture you know there's a much more connections we'll draw later Let's set the scene for now the people in this mob think that you know religion is the most productive thing you could do because Muslim communities and Mormon women love it. Read first-hand accounts. Heavy sarcasm. The narrator uses the contrast of how could you have a utopia if everybody in this puritanical society is born with original sin. (laughs) Can't exist. If there's any negative, it'll taint the whole thing. It's kind of like if you had egalitarianism today, everybody had a thousand bucks. By tomorrow, one guy would be broke and one guy would be a millionaire. Some he'd find the people with gambling addictions and take their money. It's not possible. Imagine this in today's version. It's only in the puritanical version where it looks so silly to call a girl a whore. Like for, you know, doing her own thing. The thing is, Hester, her husband ditched her. He She went to America and he's like, I'm right behind you, never showed up. So she had sex with another guy. And obviously that's not any bad on her. But since the guy in the Pope hat, like a silly robe costume of a priest has the mystique for him everyone's like yeah yeah, she's a slut make our men bow down to us there's ways you could use the social influence like the chicks with the purple hair the asexual uh what am i wolfkins of today if they were wearing the priest robe or even if donald trump had to wear a priest costume a pope hat you'd be like this is silly bullshit social contract i didn't sign shit why am i giving 30 percent of my money to this clown (laughs) hester Brynn is having all these thoughts thinking this is what's so great moving to the front and she's really tall on the stage nathaniel made the point she stands out as she did her whole life and this is the first of three mob scaffolding scenes they kind of represent the three acts of the play let's get to chapter two the intercontinental ghosting just spoiled it a little bit but Hester thinks she sees her husband 
in the crowd anonymously. She hasn't made contact for this guy in years, and she can't mistake him. Even though he's in some Native American clothing, she recognizes his stature. And she didn't cheat because she felt like it. Her husband ghosted her intercontinentally. He sent her across the pond and then said, Peace be, I'm not going to be seeing you over there. He's an absolute legend. You're going to get a taste for this guy. The narrator lets us know that he's been going around letting people know that his name is Roger Cullingsworth. They nod at each other, though, from the scaffolding to Raj and the crowd saying, I know who you are, hubby. I see you. What are you doing here? And when you're in the mob, he's asking around, what's going on today? Why is this lady on trial? He's undercover. And nobody's uh, st- stopping to take the time. Like when you're in a mob, you don't need reasoning or full stories. You need hate. You don't show up to an Antifa rally asking what the demands are for the cause. You show up enraged with a Molotov. Finally, Cullingsworth, he meets up with some Bostonian guy that looks reasonable. He's saying... This woman on the stage, she won't give up who the infidel was, so she's being called an adulterer. So they want Hester to say on stage who the cheater is. And those that are sitting there judging Hester are Governor Bellingham, Reverend Wilson, Reverend Dimsdale, the biggest names in the town. Dimsdale, he's a young, eloquent guy. He's the preacher for this little part of their town. And they're all having their own little dialogue, taking the presence away from Esther about do you think if a woman gets raped she should apologize (laughs) this was the public discourse of the time I mean we're still fighting for abortion senators are allowed to make laws about your womb (laughs) what has changed the two of them they got in a scrap over the theatrical rape and they were fighting on stage Dimsdale breaks it up as the progressive one he brings the attention back to Hester and is making a public sermon out of her. As long as you live, you will be an example of what a cheater is in our society. So they point to the baby Pearl who's wailing on the stage and say, this is an illegitimate child. (laughs) Call it whatever you want. It's in a puritanical framework. So an illegitimate kid when it's really a love child. These people couldn't stay away from each other. Hester and her not-husband who ditched her. They're calling it an illegitimate kid, so now no other kid is allowed to talk to baby Pearl. They take Hester back to the prison. They're going to leave her alive as an example. And in that prison, Cullingsworth was telling people that he is a medic in town. He practiced with the Native American cures. And so he goes to the prison and is like, I could help fix Hester for her foul thoughts. And they're like, have a crack at it, chief. And he shows the... And he goes in there with some potions and tries to give it to Hester. And Hester's like, oh my god, you just followed me across the ocean. And now you're trying to give me some magic sauce. I'm definitely not going to drink that. You just followed me across an ocean to kill me. Oh my god, you're like totally obsessed with me. So they have a couple marital fights in the prison cell. And ultimately he's saying, I'm going to keep you alive for my big revenge and Hester he wants to know who the father is of Pearl the illegitimate child and he's going if you don't tell me I'm going to expose your identity and then he backs out of the cell into the shadows with a demonic grin and she's left absolutely in a terrible frame of mind it was the only person who probably could have stood with her at a time like this and he just threatened to her not making for a good situation for Hester getting along to chapter 3 the friendly fugitive a couple more months pass of her in the prison and she is finally set free to leave boston forever 
they're going, your example is made, actually, just get out of town. Everybody forgot about you. You're old news. She decides to stay and own it rather than just let them feel like ostracizing her was a win. So she becomes a squatter on the edge of town in an abandoned cabin with infertile land. Your English teacher would spend a whole period on that. The point of this, though, is like what she served her time in the prison cell but her punishment is never over. She's stamped with the outsider now. And this book is all about how shame and ostracizing people is plenty of a punishment. You can't live without yourself in a reference to other people. That's how humans work. So she's she's really scumming it. Just bottom of the barrel society. She's alienated from the town fathers, any respected women. Children won't talk to her, even town visitors. She's hanging out with the beggars. She's like a walking example of a fallen woman to prove that adultery is the highest crime a woman could commit. Hester has not much to do. She works on her needling skills, and she was really good. The governor started buying some of her stitches, and for a few years of this, years, they had to make a rule about it. They're like, it's getting into the governor's. The heretic's hands are getting... Her work is touching our clean skin. <laughs> it's like um, kosher. You can't have a ham and cheese sandwich. It tastes amazing, Moses. You cannot have an adulterer's robes dressed on you. Years of this, it's weighing on Hester, and she's snaking through every quarter of society. People start to like her. She's helping out the hungry. She becomes the friendly fugitive. And with all of her knitting on principle, she will not make a wedding gown because she's saying, "Why I do not, I do not want women to agree to this thing where you're not allowed to leave and your man can cheat all over you, abuse you, and then when he ditches you, you can never have sex again. That's not fair." So she stops making those government-influenced sex life robes, a.k.a. a wedding gown. Very romantic for the lady listeners. 90% male audience here. Pearl, her child, is a toddler now. <laughs> All of the people in town are seeing the repercussions of ostracizing Hester. Like, Pearl is a little schizo. She has all of her imaginary friends, and she knows, she kind of likes it, like, identifies with the A being an outsider. She's having fun. This just draws more people into Hester's business, which isn't bad. Pearl growing up in this state makes Hester question it. Oh no, is this really right of me to make a daughter go through this? What does it mean for a girl not to have the ability to grow up wearing a dress? And it makes her question femininity, all of that good stuff. Chapter 4, let's move the narrative along. C -c Custody battles. Hester Prynne, she is visiting Governor Bellingham's mansion... She's dropping off a pair of gloves and robes as a cover to see if there's any truth behind the rumors that Pearl is going to be taken away from her. And on the way there, a bunch of kids fling mud at Hester. She's dirty to meet with the governor and all the demagogues of Puritanism. The government building is all stuffy. It's a replica, like this car I'm recording in an English mansion with Indian armor all over the walls. And when they get there, Pearl, at three years old, is pointing at the armor. That's you, Mommy. You're so strong. It's just supposed to enforce again. She's super tough for being on the outskirts for so long. She's wearing a velvet tunic where the A on her chest takes up basically the entire outfit she wore it on purpose to mess 
with the government people. That's what, like, Easy A, that movie, was really good. She leans into it. If <laughs> I didn't actually lose my virginity, but you're going to start a rumor, all right, I'm the town slut now, whatever. I'm going to make it so gay guys could pretend to be straight. Hester's playing into it at this point. It's been years. So the people's argument is that she's a demon child. Pearl needs to be taken away and purified by the governor's own raising. And Hester's losing it. You're not going to take my kid away from me. She's absolutely flipping out. New mother energy. (laughs) Uh, Governor Wilson, Dimsdale, and Covingsworth himself were there. And they all want to take the kid away. And Hester is making cries to the council. She's like, I wasn't even supposed to be here today. I'm just dropping off uh, some robes. And they're like, we know what you came here for, B. We're going to take your kid away. Dimsdale eventually sticks his neck out in front of the whole group. He's like, God sent this woman on Earth as a blessing and a curse. Like, it sucks to have this slut in our town. Let's just put her in the back corner. But it shows as an example for all the other women what can happen to them. If they go through the criminal justice system, now what will happen if them if they don't have sex with only their husband their whole life? What really is the stamp of the mark of the beast? You know, the eventually it's going to be if you don't get the COVID shot. <laughs> there are these things throughout time where if you don't appeal to the zealot zeitgeist mass consensus, you will be pushed to the edges. And is she really doing anything wrong? So Hibbins, the governor, was like... Get the fuck out of my mansion. (laughs) You're lucky Dimsdale stuck his neck out for you. I don't know why. And Hibbin's sister on the way out of the mansion approaches Hester and is like, you know, tonight, me and the girls, we're not really about this whole thing. Even though they were the ones in the square shaming her. You slut. This is how it goes in girl country. They'll never throw a punch. They'll just fucking stab you in the back in front of your own fucking people. Hibbin's sister was like, How about you come with us into the woods for one of our cauldron boils tonight? (laughs) They don't have bonfires. They throw rabbit feet, spare testicles, and all their witches' potions together in a cauldron in the middle of the woods at night. And so it could be like government entrapment. They're trying to just get Hester on this quick charge. Aha! You were about to go meet with the real witches! Or maybe, you know, the people who enforce the rules are always the biggest rule breakers. No, no, I know a police officer. How come our government officials are drinking fetus blood on Jeffrey Epstein's island? (laughs) Literally. The people who stand for these things the most never really fucking care about it. It's always a play. So what do we know? Sister Hibbins, she could really be the true witch in town. Takes us to chapter five, The Leech. Since the town had so little medical care, Cullingsworth... Her uh, ex-husband was welcomed with open arms, even though he was (laughs) doing the old splinting methods of the natives. He has a European science education, so he knows some of that. He gets the nickname in town, The Leech. He thinks it's because he's just hopping towns trying to make a quick buck as the town uh, doctor. The point is he's like leeching from the governor. He's, be patient, you'll see. Over the few years that he's in town, though, people notice Collingsworth is looking more frail and sick himself. And by abstaining from women while he was there, he's a good-looking guy, he was able to live with the minister, Dimsdale. Kept an air of professionalism as he's rotting away. His room looks over the cemetery, which is supposed to be symbolic. He's always overlooking sin and death and just like... uh, 
the great uh, Russian novels. They know about guilt. He's saying uh, it's eating him from the inside out, maybe. The fact that he's being a deadbeat, even though it's not his kid. Hester, that friggin' hoe. He should be taking care of the kid and shouldn't have probably left his wife in another continent. <laughs> he's probably eating him from the inside out. At first, the town was ecstatic to have him. Now they're starting to look into his background, and that's weighing on him a little bit more. All of this, it keeps snowballing. They start to think he's possessed. They think that Collingsworth is the devil in town trying to negotiate Dimsdale for his soul. <laughs> he's trying to make a deal with the minister. And so Collingsworth and Dimsdale living together, they get close Collingsworth, as the medical practitioner, is trying to find out where Dimsdale condition is coming from. And he's just like, yeah, I think my human condition is ramping up. I'm not really vibing. Don't tell anyone this, but I don't think the puritanical rule is everything I believe in anymore. And so he has some own guilt of his own. We're not let to know by the narrator yet what it's coming from. And the conversation is supposed to represent as well how Collingsworth is the man of science and Dimsdale is the religion. But both of them can coexist in the house of the governor to maintain control over the people. You know, government and science, they love it. <laughs> NASA has a telescope named Lucifer, if anybody wants to look into that. And the Big Bang coincides pretty nicely with God's creation, seven days, and then the universe is here out of nowhere. Pretty convenient. It's uh, relevant now more than ever, the themes from this book. They talk poetically some more, Dimsdale and Collingsworth, about confession and redemption, and if it's worth it, if it really is good for your soul to repent for your sins... Hold that idea in your end till the end. Is it worth it or is it good to live with it and bury it and bury it and bury it until you go cray? On this day in particular, Pearl and Hester were in the graveyard. Pearl starts screaming and Pearl uh, points up to Collingsworth in the window like the eerie little girl in a horror movie. They're here. She points to Collingsworth and is like, I see an evil aura radiating around that man. And Hester's like, let's stay away from him. I do think that he's turned a worse leaf. But let's give him one more shot. Pretty much ends the leech chapter. You see why they think he's leeching off their minister. Chapter 6, the minister's mic. We're headed back to the scaffolding. Minister Dimsdale is now treating uh, Collingsworth completely with contempt and loathing. He's now working on his revenge plan to get this drifter out of his town. And Dimsdale, he still can't put a rational basis to his feelings why he is getting worse. And he is thinking... I can't put a pin to it, but I think Collingsworth is responsible for my mal feelings. And so as Dimsdale sinks further and further into his own pain, he starts giving some of the best sermons of his life. He is in his artist roundhouse, self-loathing, no material possessions, Dimsdale... He's identifying with the people. One of his famous quotes from this point was, The whole human brotherhood is the heart's native language. He's identifying with the lower people in the town, finally. Uh, that's all that uh, religion is. You know, you're attuning to your own moral compass, and he's learning that of the societies now. And the Bible is offering little support to his sermons. He's saying... He thinks the whole universe is false. He's self-punishing Dimsdale, the minister. He is scrounging himself. He's whipping himself, like really taking it to a new level of self-pain. He holds extended vigils, killing it. He decides he needs another sermon on the scaffolding. 
that he had uh, Hester Prynne condemned at. So it's going to be his, like, second biggest show sold out. A few days go by. It is time for the minister's mic, and he has gone a little too far. He is in a place of despair, and his guilt, whatever it is, the inside is eating away at him. He's clutching his burning heart on the stage, letting it cry out, drawing all the townspeople. Gather round, gather round! Everybody's coming, and he's like, There's a burden upon me. I must speak to the townspeople now, for it is a time for me to repent. And everyone's like, what? Is the minister guilty of something? What is he doing up there? And Reverend Wilson is returning right on time from another town. He was burying another minister. And he's like, Dimsdale, get the fuck off the stage. What are you doing? People think you're putting yourself on trial for subconscious guilt. You're acting like a madman right now. And Hester and Pearl, they just showed up from Winthrop's wake. The reverend of the other town that died where Wilson was also at. Hester and Pearl get there. Pearl immediately laughing her ass off. She's embracing Dimsdale's bomb. He is the worst show, even though you know you're not going to hit 100% of the time. Dimsdale, he's spiraling out of control. He calls Hester and Pearl onto the stage. These are his uh, go-to. It's his plant in the audience. And he feels like an electric energy surges through the audience when they remember what Hester was condemned for. And I thought that was pretty interesting, Nathaniel Hawthorne. (laughs) what are you from the future they didn't have electricity at that time how does he know it's pretty cool like even in those public speaking moments they knew whatever humans are they felt that electric thing and as Hester rises to the stage everybody's on their toes oh oh, 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 this is prime entertainment (laughs) they're about to fucking condemn Hester again for being a whore at the same moment A meteor streaks across the sky. I shit you not, Nathaniel Hawthorne is writing sci-fi now. A meteor strikes across the sky and leaves the trail of an A in the air. And while the crowd is in awe, Dimsdale asks Hester, You must tell me, who is this Collingsworth? I'm living with him, tell me. He's consuming my every thought. Hester will not give up his identity. She's saying, you threatened to take my kid away from me. I will never help you again. Collingsworth, he's in the crowd. Dimsdale, he's yelling down to him, get up here, you fraud. And so this did not end well, this stage. I mean, everybody's still looking at the meteor in the sky, so they get Dimsdale off the stage. Supposed to represent, you know, you could repent for your sins on the stage, or you could double down on your repression, like the guys were talking about before. Do you just deny, deny, deny? Or try to repent. And like in the Dostoevsky, do you go to the town square, the cross in the train tracks and bow down for everyone to see? Or do you go back to your underground lair? (laughs) And so this is what Dimsdale is doing. It's going to take us to chapter 7. This will be an everlasting love. Pearl herself is now 7 years old as well. She's lived a life in seclusion like her mother has been. And Hester, she's doing more social work than ever to make ends meet. She's bringing food to the doors of the poor. She's nursing sick people. She's like a source of aid in times of trouble for anybody. So much so to the point people in town start seeing the A on her chest for able instead of adulterer. They Like she stuck through the ostracization, the hard part. People are now seeing her as an independent woman a real boss ass bitch she's on her own now and people are like that bitch is capable of anything not she's an adulterer being defined by her relationships again 
Go back. That might be our biggest episode of the year, the Feminine Mystique, back in March. Still decently holds up. Hester, she no longer considers herself tender and passionate like the younger herself who was yelled at in front of the mob by everybody. She's now like passionate, a radical, branded red hot, a harsh outline of her former self. It's all symbolic, you know, the mass identity, the self-mirror. She's getting through the different points of her life. The letter was, it's a uh, hero's journey inside a heroine. The ladies, I gotta, I'm sure I'll get called a misogynist for this episode somehow, but Hester, she's done the full, uh, like, uh, character development at this point. Rather than the arrested development that's being pushed of the third wave purple-haired feminists. (laughs) That's gonna sound bite me in the ass. Hester and Pearl, they one day invite Cullingsworth out on the beach to meet with them. There's like her last shot. She's like Cullingsworth kind of cray. I guess I'm going to have one more date with him, feel him out. And this is Hester's spot, the beach. This is where she takes all of her mans to feel him out. You'll see. At first, Cullingsworth, he's insincere but acting nice, putting a front up. And we're going over the texts right now, the meta-analysis. We're getting overanalyzing everything like Hester is. We're in her brain for this half of the chapter. Cullingsworth, he's like, what the heck was that all about at the minister's mic? I feel like you were, like, favoring Dimsdale. Like, why were you so up on him? She's like, well, you kind of left me for a new world, Raj. There's not even a map made of this place left, and you stayed with your mommy in Amsterdam. (laughs) And he's like, but what's up with you and that Dimsdale guy? And Hester is oddly urging Cullingsworth to reveal his identity. She's like, I don't know, but... She's uh, pretending to be dumb, pulling her tits out a little bit. I don't really know, but I kind of like you again, Roger. Maybe if um, you would reveal your identity to Dimsdale, we can make this happen again. But Collingsworth, he's a little smarter than this. He went and lived with natives for a while. He's like, all right, bitch, the only incentive for you to be pushing me to reveal my identity would be if Dimsdale was the child's true father. No! I've been sleeping with my cuck. He's been sleeping with the dude who knocked up his wife, Dimsdale and Cullingsworth. That's why all they were having all these deep talks. A complete awakening of awareness comes over Cullingsworth. He's like, you bitch, you cheated on me, I can't. He's stomping his foot out and kicking sand all over the beach. <laughs> Hester was like <laughs> thinking to herself, fuck man, I knew, used to know him. As a young, aspiring uh, scholar, he was practicing medicine, and now this old, bitter man, there's just venge and heartlessness inside of him. A dark void has consumed him. They both think they're right. You know, Cullingsworth is like, the, the side of God on me is to destroy you now, you adulterer. You've been sleeping with my best friend in this new place. <laughs> you just met this dude. <laughs> we lived together. You ditched me. Hester thinks you should love who you love. She thinks she's right. Not who the church fixes you up marriage papers for. (laughs) This is going to bring us to chapter 8. The Puritanical Parenting. A.K.A. Date (laughs) 2. She's taking a walk on the beach. Hester and Pearl, they're having a conversation as he, like, gets his steam off. And this is a mortal sin, but as Hester looks at Cullingsworth, she realizes, I don't love my husband. Yeah, it's a mortal sin at the time. Who gives a fuck? Get a divorce. 50% of people do it now. 
big deal at the time. She's like, I don't love him. And <laughs> maybe we were conjoined under false pretenses. That was her exact phrase. That's great language, though. Imagine this is how heartless that your wife would be in a illegal separation. <laughs> Our marriage took place under the drug of love. We were conjoined under false pretenses, Your Honor. <laughs> this bitch is heartless. Think about it, though. You're not allowed to sign a contract even when you're one beer in, when you're drunk, when you're high, you can't sign a contract. Love is more toxic than oxytocin, but you could get married. The government encourages it. <laughs> that that could be a whole book on its own. I mean, Nate's kind of <laughs> fucking saying, hey, guys, what's the ring for? <laughs> so Pearl, she's playing in the tide pools. She leaves her mother now to deal with those own thoughts. She doesn't love this man anymore. And Pearl, she's pretending to be a mermaid. She makes an A on her own chest out of seaweed. And this is a good time for Hester to finally ask what Pearl thinks the letter means. And Pearl is like, uh, I thought it was a connection between you and Dimsdale. He's always clutching his heart at his sermons. <laughs> he has heartburn and gout. And Pearl always has the thing on her heart. And Pearl's like, whoa, you're a smart kid. I never told you who your real dad is. But you put it together from our little subconscious tics. Is kind of her subtext of the book. Hester hedges the conversation. She's like, Pearl, you're too young to get the full dynamic. Let's go meet Dimsdale. And Hester decides that she has to tell Dimsdale about Collingsworth identity, and she's going to do it in the cover of the forest. And while she's waiting for Dimsdale one day in the forest, Pearl, she turns into a poet. The sunshine does not love you. It runs away from you, mother. It hides itself because it's afraid of something on your bosom. It will not flee from me, for I wear nothing on my bosom yet. She gets the point of innocence as a seven-year-old. Bigger points in the book that we're kind of glazing over here. We pick up steam toward the later half. The action is coming back. Dimsdale makes up a cover. He's like, I got a meeting with a native tribe later. I'm going out into the woods. And so he goes out to the beach to meet with Pearl, another date. This is going to take us to chapter nine, bit of a cliffhanger. Walking on sunshine. This is... The first time in years that Hester and Collingsworth are able to meet without being seen or talked about. No gossip here. That was a good part about Easy A, the movie. Every time she pretended to have sex, they did a text message scene. The camera zooms around in double time speed around the whole campus where everybody knows within a second. They have to go to the cover of the woods to get any sort of privacy in this society. Hester, first thing she does, she doesn't want to beat around the bush. She reveals... Roger Collingsworth identity and the narrator says a dark transfiguration comes over Dimsworth and again Dimsdale oh, you fucking bitch what the hell you've, you've been making me live with your ex-husband he absolutely freaks out he's cursing her out what <laughs> this absolutely crushes Hester she's like I had residual feelings for you bro this was the only thing that was ever going to make me have an orgasm again She's crushed by this. She begs for Dimsdale's forgiveness. She's pushing his head into her bosom. Look at the letter. You put this on me. We can make this right. We are face to face with it once again. She didn't say all that outright. That's the subtext. Dimsdale eventually forgives her. He's like, the evil within Cullingsworth was so strong that it overtook me. He's blaming it on her ex. Dimsdale also sees that the leverage had over his head and Hester's and how crippling it must have been for Hester not only 
did Dimsdale ostracizer towards the ends of town, even though it was kind of like a show thing. Collingsworth, now that he knows who it was, he was like, damn, your husband was in town the whole time and was threatening to kill you. I feel for you. So in the woods, Hester, she kind of feels a little bit better. She's not totally trusting of Dimsdale again, but they are formulating a plan to resign Puritanism because remember Dimsdale was kind of faltering with it before. So they have a little scene with Pearl again. Pearl comes over and without saying it, Hester's like, give uh, the minister a kiss. You love this man. And she's like, I don't, why won't he wear his like creepy little girl again? Why isn't he going to wear his pain on his sleeve too? He's always clutching his chest. He kisses Pearl on the forehead and she runs away and she wipes it off in the creek where she was pretending to be a mermaid. Oof, he got the cooties treatment from his own daughter. She doesn't even know that it's her dad yet, still in the gray area. So they're going to hope to stow away on a ship together. Mrs. Hester and Dimsdale are like, we're all going to we're gonna go back to the motherland. We're going to Europe. <laughs> Pearl, you're going to learn to get along with this guy. I'm sorry. I know he was out for milk and cigarettes for seven years. This is going to be your stepdad. They don't bring it to her fully. We're going to the new land with him. Brings us to chapter 10, a new lease on life. They're totally feeling 100% revived. They have hope again, what the Puritanism is supposed to give them, hope of a new life. But no, Earth is just a stepping stone on the way to heaven. She is now seeing Earth as an adventure again to, you know, go across with her lover. And so Helter is feeling the old sad weight of herself and the pin of the A on her chest totally vanishing. The minister, he starts blowing his cover a little bit. He starts teaching kids in the streets dirty words. You know, not very clergymen-like. He's meeting with Mistress Hibbins, they said, but not apparently to make some deals. We don't know. Maybe he is cheating with her as well. This guy could be slinging all over Puritanville. And it goes on that he's throwing some of the best homilies of his life again. The big election is in three days. Dimsdale throws out his old yearly homily for this thing, and he writes an entirely new one. Once Dimsdale gets home from what he said was the native retreat, he tells Collingsworth, who he, he's on edge fully around now. He's like, I don't need any more of your medicine. I'm feeling tip-top. Collingsworth comes outright. He's like, mm, you don't need my medicine who are you? What is your identity? Left with a cliffhanger. Chapter 11, Relation Shipwreck. It is three days later. The New England Election Day is upon us. Swaths of people in the street Mardi Gras. It is echoing with cheers and Bible hymns. It's also a little representative of the second scaffolding speech and how the tides might have turned a little bit. The dying of Reverend whatever it was in the other town is now symbolizing a medieval time, a renaissance. That's what usually comes after an enlightenment. And Hester, she's keeping her eyes on the port. She's looking to see if the ship is full of sailors that's going to be ready to take off for her and Dimsdale to stow away on. Hawthorne keeps a lot in the gray at the end. It's supposed to be like an action movie scene. They're cutting corners at the last minute. Pearl's questioning ramps up of Dimsdale. Why is he going to join us if he won't even hold your hand in public? She's making her mom more anxious. They get uh, the bad news that Cullingsworth 
has talked his way aboard the ship. <laughs> That's right, of course the ship needed a doctor, so Collingsworth is about to crash the party. He knew Hester was going to be there, and he sees Collingsworth from across the public square. The floats are going by, and he has his demonic grin. This guy is in the Hall of Fame for abusive ex-boyfriends, and he's just smiling at her, punching his fist, and then he disappears behind one of the floats. <laughs> he's going to appear on the ship later, maybe. It's time, though, for Dimsdale, the lover boy, his final mic. Hester snags a spot in the front row to cheer him on. Dimsdale is up on top of the scaffolding, just flexing his muscles, trying to get these old, illiterate, dirty buffoons ready for a little public show. Now Pearl is squeezing through the crowd, and she's saying how uh, the, the ship's going to leave early. The guy just told me she's eight years old. She's doing her own thing now. And Hester, the final thought for her, she's back in the mob where she started, and she's like, getting the heebie-jeebies I do not want to be in the middle of this crowd I have served my purpose a lot of people have came around to the fact that I am able I'm not some adulterer she's just a chick trying to throw some tail around she's going these people although some are seeing the fact the vast majority will never get the message she's like I wrote the book I put all the information out there I can't try to die on the hill. Most people, like, you got to go on to live a life at some point. And Hester's going, these people are bound for fucking a meteor. One of those are finally going to hit their head. You keep believing the meteor symbolizes a new age. You have to initialize the new age. Give up the stupid rules that you have. And Hester, <laughs> praying the comet hits, she's ready to start a new one. Chapter 12, this is going to be the headliner. Dimsdale. He finishes. They go through the whole thing. He wrote the whole new sermon. I've been feeling the pain, ladies and gentlemen. Have you been feeling the pain? Amen. Now let the bad spirit rise from your soul. Shake, shake, feel the kundalini in your spine. He gave the best sermon of his life. Nathaniel gave no detail. <laughs> That's if I had to write a sermon in one second off the rip. He said he drew from his internal sin, and this made the clergy mad. You're supposed to be pure as one of the clergymen, and he was admitting to some of his own wrongdoings. And he's like, I'm about to leave this town. I could apologize to everyone. The crowd was super moved. He talked about God's relation to the everyday man. Again, how he kind of put it together in that second mic. He's finally getting it. He's like, I have to relate myself and the divine God to all of these people. Oh my God, he's like so relatable. The people are absolutely glowing. Like they witnessed a transcendent experience of him performing. They think it's the most truth they ever heard and they make their way not to go better their lives and tell their wife they love them. They go to the feast at the market. You got to remember, it's election day. The streets are wild. On stage, Dimsdale puts his arm around Hester while he's cheering to the crowd. And everyone's like, what? He's with the slut? No, he just did the best godly speech ever. He's tainted again. So even when they witness the best story ever, literally a written story in front of their eyes, a minister's mic, they don't get the message. They fucking still are condemning her rather than looking for the sinner within themselves. And so the crowd recoils in shock. Pearl runs to Dimsdale and kisses Dimsdale finally. Dimsdale is like, why don't the people love me? That's maybe what has been eating away at him the longest. He's been looking for fame in a puritanical society. 
damn. <laughs> and he's like, I cannot go on anymore. I know we're supposed to run away, but it hurts. He's clutching his heart again, and Dimsdale in front of everybody. They turn back around. Even though they're about to get food, they turn back around. Dimsdale ripped his shirt off, and there is a mark on his chest. He's on his knees yelling up to God. And everyone, <gasps> what is that? Can it be? No. In the audience, they see what looks to be a red A on Dimsdale's chest. And the narrator, of course, leaves it in the dark. He never makes it clear, but we're supposed to think maybe that's what the scrounging was, the self-torture. He carved an A into his own chest. Maybe the subconscious guilt was so much that it surfaced. It came up to his chest where his heart should have been with the woman. And he wound up dying for it. And Pearl, she goes over and kisses Dimsdale on the chest. He finally gets the innocence, the pure kiss from the kid. And then, in his final breaths, Hester's like, No, we were supposed to have a new life. We were going to run away together. And her final thing is, Minister Dimsdale, are we at least going to be together in the afterlife? Dimsdale goes, That is up for God to decide. Peace be flat lines he dies <laughs> an absolutely legendary headliner this guy should be remembered forever his last bit was breaking up with his wife saying death does us part and then having a heart attack dying on stage legend <laughs> i mean hester she knows how to choose a man an intercontinental ghoster and an absolute ripper of the mic <laughs> she's ready to start anew the scarlet a becomes an urban legend Collingsworth slowly withers away on his own. He has no purpose anymore. No one to take his venge out on dies super quick. Pearl is left with a healthy in her inheritance. Hester took her to Europe for a while. They got married into some, like a, he said, some regal family. You know, he, she got the fairy tale ending. And they left Pearl there. Hester comes back in later yards. She serves the kids. She becomes like a mother Teresa. i don't know that allegory so it could be way off but she comes a big symbol for all of the girls in the town that they don't have to be held to the customs of any society or any fucking bitchy side eyes that they see you can do whatever you want if you're a true feminist and when hester prynne dies she gets buried next to dimsdale they have a heart tombstone and an a on it <laughs> It's nowhere visible because this is a fictional story. But it represents all of this. It probably happened at some time. That's why we don't choose the sci-fi. We do the real fic on Nick's nonfiction. With Pearl going into the Royal Society at the end, it represents she went somewhere with an established order. Like a social order where she didn't have to try to overly adapt to fit into the dogma. She didn't have to wear a chastity belt where everybody in Europe already knows your place. If you're a butcher, you're a butcher. Your dad was a butcher and your dad's dad. Not everybody making vast generalizations to some that show up because that's the Scarlet Letter. <laughs> Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I appreciate you guys for staying for a wilder show and hearing it out for our girl Hester. She really got the short end of the stick. She got to try out a few sticks, which is more than a lot of the girls in the puritanical times. Guys died virgins back then. Can we pour one out for the homies who died a virgin? And again, of course, you got to pour one out for the guys who had to live their whole life in the closet. Even the women won't even pour one out for that. <laughs> that is male privilege. 
Thank you again, guys. Thank you, Nasty Nate Hawthorne. That's going to take us to next week. And we, that was our Halloween-themed episode, So Spooky. We got to ramp it up for election season. Ladies and gentlemen, next Tuesday, you got Liars Poker. This is a mere week before the biggest election in U.S. history, and we are exposing the traditional cycle of the 10-year big bank bailout. Again, this year, $4 trillion went to the big banks and got nothing to the people. Maybe you got lucky and got a stimmy yourself. We are going to be exposing all of these rackets today. This guy, Michael Lewis, who wrote Liar's Poker, also wrote Moneyball and The Big Short. I'm definitely going to read those books as well, but this is all into the underground fraternal world of the stock market. He's talking about congressional subcommittees who get ungodly sums of money to launder through these banks. We're totally exposing the racket next week and the few weeks to come, the road to serfdom, election day. The week after that, we got Provo. This is about where Hester retreated to Amsterdam, and they always have this artist community, the red light district, where you can get a stripper so next week ladies and gentlemen michael lewis's liars poker you're not going to want to miss that thank you again over these past two weeks you have become an expert of the enlightenment thanks to nick's nonfiction. i will see you in seven short days thank you guys stay golden love you peace